We apologise for the crackling that can be heard in certain parts of the following recording. This was due to a fault on the machine that was used to record the original tape and unfortunately is beyond repair. However, we do hope that this will not spoil your enjoyment of this message by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's second epistle to Timothy, the first chapter and the sixth verse. The sixth verse in the first chapter of Paul's second epistle to Timothy. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. I am concerned particularly about this exhortation which the apostle here addresses to Timothy to the effect that he should stir up the gift that is in him. It's a great statement this with many problems which I don't propose to consider this morning. I'm interested mainly, I say, and primarily in this exhortation concerning the stirring up. And I call your attention to this statement uh, as a part of our general consideration on Sunday mornings of the subject which we have described as spiritual depression. We've been looking together for some seven or eight Sunday mornings at this uh, subject, this vital subject in connection with our Christian life and discipleship. Spiritual depression, or if you prefer the alternative term, we are trying to diagnose and to treat the case of the so-called miserable Christian. Now we've been uh, at pains to indicate Sunday by Sunday that these very terms uh, in and of themselves uh, direct our attention to that which is so essentially wrong about this condition. These words are really incompatible, and yet we must put them together because they're accurate as descriptions of certain people. Miserable Christian. It should be impossible, but actually it's a fact. Spiritual depression. There shouldn't be such a thing, but there is such a thing. And it is our business as we understand the teaching of the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New, to deal with these conditions. There are those, I know, who won't recognize these conditions at all and brush them aside impatiently and just say that the Christian is one who sings all the day long and that ever since they were converted, that's been their story. And now I am happy all the day, never known a ripple on the surface of the soul, and all has been perfectly well, they won't recognize these conditions at all, and would even doubt, perhaps, therefore, that those who may be given to depression, and uh, who know something of being unhappy, they would even doubt whether such people are Christians at all. Well, I think we've demonstrated abundantly that that is very wrong, that the scriptures, thank God, are much kinder than such friends, and do grant clearly by their own teaching that it is possible for a true Christian to be depressed. Not that he is justified for being depressed, but it recognizes the fact that he may be. And it is the business of anyone who is concerned about the nurture and the care of the soul to understand such cases and to apply to them the remedy that God has provided so freely in the words of the scriptures. 
Well, now we've considered together many causes of this condition. And still we go on. They're almost endless. We are confronted, as I'm reminding you, by a very subtle and a very powerful adversary who knows us so well, knows us much better than we know ourselves. And his one great object and endeavor is to detract from the glory of God and from the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no more effective way in which he can do that than to make Christian people miserable and depressed. Because, whether we like it or not, the fact is that the world still judges God and the Lord Jesus Christ by what it sees in us. And we can't blame them for doing that. We make certain claims. The very ascription of the designation Christian to ourselves is a claim, it's a challenge. And the world is entitled to look at us. It says, you're making a claim, but what of you? And it has always used this weapon, and a very powerful weapon it is. It has said, look at those Christians. Is that Christianity? Is that the thing to which you are inviting us? There is no question at all. Let's be quite clear and brutally frank with one another. There is no question at all that the thing above everything else that accounts for the fact that the masses of the people are outside the Christian church today is the condition of those of us who are inside the church. There's no question about that. And read the story of every revival that has ever taken place, and you'll find that it's always happened like this. One man, a number of people, have suddenly become alive in a true Christian sense, and everybody's began to pay attention. And the world has been stirred and has paid attention. That's the method. So, we are doing something that should lead us to the high road to revival, if indeed it is not the high road to revival itself. Well, now, we've looked at these various causes. And in the immediate past, we've been looking at the way in which the devil gets us to concentrate on the past, some sin we've committed, the time we've wasted, and we bemoan it, and we're miserable in the present because we're worrying about the past. And if that doesn't work, I indicated last Sunday morning that then he changes his tactics completely and gets us to look to the future. There we see the difficulties and the problems, and we see our own weakness, and we say, who are we to meet such conditions? Now, we consider that in the light of the seventh verse of this uh, first chapter of the second epistle to Timothy last Sunday morning, where he says, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of a sound mind, a discipline. Well now, this morning we move on to another theme, very closely connected, of course. The very proximity of these two verses is uh, an index in itself of the close association of what we were looking at last Sunday morning, merely that uh, fear and apprehension and apprehensiveness, rather, with respect to the future. And this theme that is indicated in this verse, which is this. The whole problem of feelings, the place of feelings in the Christian life. Now, I'm sure that everyone present is ready to grant at once that there is nothing that is so frequently encountered as a cause of spiritual depression and unhappiness in the Christian life as this very problem of the feelings, where they come in and what they should be. People are constantly troubled 
about uh, this matter of feelings, and I'm sure that all who have ever been engaged in the pastoral office will agree that uh, there is no particular subject that brings people so frequently to to the pastor as this very problem of feelings. Now, that's very natural, because, after all, we all desire to be happy. That's something that's innate in human nature. Nobody really wants to be miserable. I know there are many people who enjoy being miserable, but in a sense, even they don't want to be miserable. Everybody really wants to be happy. And in that sort of perverse way, there are those, as I say, who seem to find their happiness even in being unhappy. This is due to the fact, of course, that our feelings play such an important and a fundamental part in our lives. I regard it as a great part of my calling in the ministry to emphasize the priority of the mind and the intellect in connection with the faith. But though I say that, I am very ready to admit that the feelings, the emotions, the sensibilities, obviously are of very vital importance. We've been made in such a way that they play such a a dominant part in our makeup. And indeed, I suppose that one of the greatest problems in life in this world, not only for Christians, but for all people, is the right handling of one's feelings and emotions. Oh, the havoc and the tragedy, the misery and the wretchedness that are to be found in life and in this world this morning, simply because people do not know how to handle their own feelings. So, you see, man is so constituted that uh, the feelings are in this very prominent position. And, indeed, there is a very good case for saying and for making out the case that perhaps the final thing which the regeneration and the new birth does for us is just to put the mind and the emotion and the will in their right positions. Well, we'll proceed to consider that as we analyze this subject. It's obviously a very great subject which no one can deal with in the time at our disposal. But I do feel that it's rather important that we should take a comprehensive view of it, rather than deal in detail and in particular with one aspect of the question. Now, there is a preliminary point here, which to me, at any rate, is of interest, which is, as I suggested at the beginning, that there is a curious relationship between this particular problem and that other problem of being uh, nervous and uh, frightened uh, of the future. These things tend to go together, so it's not surprising that the two things were found in this one young man, Timothy, obviously a, a naturally nervous person but equally obviously, I think, a person who was given to depression. And the two things often are to be found in the same kind of person. Once more, therefore, we must indicate that there are certain people who are more prone to depression in a natural sense than others. And again, let me underline and re-emphasize this vital statement in connection with this whole consideration that though we are converted and regenerated, our fundamental personality is not changed. 
so that the person who was more given to depression than another person before conversion will still have to fight that after conversion. We've all got certain common problems in the Christian life, yes, but we all have our special problems also. We vary in our gifts. We haven't all the same talents. One man has one gift, another another. Well, it's exactly the same on the other side. The heart knoweth its own misery, and every man has his own burden to carry. And we've all got something, which is our peculiar difficulty. And it's generally something that belongs to the realm of our temperament and our natural makeup. So the person who is naturally given to introspection and morbidity and depression will still have to bear that in mind in the Christian life. The danger for such a person will be to become depressed, and particularly in connection with this whole question of the feelings. Well, very well, it seemed to me that the most profitable thing that we could do is to look at this subject in a general way and perhaps return to the particulars uh, later on as we come to deal with particular illustrations. Therefore, let us make a number of general statements about feelings and about their place in the Christian life. Now, that seems to me to be the most essential problem. Where do feelings come in? What is their place? What should be their position in the Christian experience? Well, I suggest to you a number of general statements to this effect. First and foremost, obviously, the feelings should be engaged. They are meant to enter in. Now, we saw that when we considered that great statement which Paul made to the Romans in the 6th chapter, you remember, in the 17th verse, God be thanked, he says, that uh, though ye were the servants of sin, you have obeyed from the heart the form of sound doctrine delivered unto you. And the whole emphasis that morning was, you remember this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so great and so glorious that he takes up the whole man. doesn't really take up a part of a man. Gosh! Unfortunately, as we saw, there are some people who are only taken up partially and they become lopsided Christians. Some men are only intellectually interested in, in Christianity. Others are a mere mass of emotions without any understanding, with no doctrine, and others are simply ethical practitioners, moralists, and moral behaviorists. Now, we, we denounced all that and indicated that the gospel takes up the whole man. And all I want to indicate, therefore, this morning is this, that our feelings should be actively engaged as Christians. If you and I have never been moved by our faith, my friends, well, I say we'd better examine the foundations again. If a poet even can say, for I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joys of elevated thought. If a mystical poet, who was partly a pantheist, could say a thing like that, how much more so should you and I be able to say it? With such a gospel, with such a message, with such a power and an influence as the Holy Spirit of God. You can't read your New Testament without seeing at a glance that joy is meant to be an essential part of the Christian experience. And that is one of the most striking things that conversion does, is to take one out of some horrible pit, some miry clay, 
and establish one's feet upon a rock and establish one's going and give a new song in the heart. Joy, the feelings. They're meant to be engaged. And when the gospel comes to us truly, it does involve the whole man. It moves his mind as he sees its glorious, sweet, and riches. It moves his heart in the same way and it moves his will. He lives what he preaches and what he believes. He acts it. He puts it into daily practice. Very well. The feeling should be engaged. Now then, the second uh, statement which I want to make is this. And these are very simple and elementary, but uh, we are often in trouble because we forget them. That's why I don't apologize for repeating them. The second thing is this. We cannot create feelings. We cannot command them at will. Let me put this quite plainly. You can't generate feelings within yourself. Ah, you can make yourself weep. I've often seen people making themselves weep and cry, but that doesn't of necessity mean feelings. That's false sentimentality. I'm talking about true emotion. And it's something, of course, that eludes us. We can't create it. Try your best. You can't do it. In a sense, the more you try to produce feelings within yourself, the more you're increasing your own misery. That is one of the most remarkable things about men regarded constitutionally or psychologically, isn't it? That in this respect, he's not master of himself. He can't generate, produce the feeling. He can't bring it into being. He can't generate it. And therefore... Any attempt to do so directly is always, I say, likely to exacerbate the trouble from which he suffered. So I go on to my next statement, which is that clearly there is nothing which is quite so variable about us as our feelings. We are very variable creatures, and our feelings, I say, are of everything that belongs to us, the most variable of all. And that is because they're dependent upon so many factors. There are so many things that influence the feelings, as I've indicated, temperament, but not only that, physical conditions. The ancient people, as you know, used to believe that feelings were located in the different organs of the body. In a sense, you know, they were right. The atrabiliar all seems yellow to the jaundiced eye. Well, it does, as a matter of fact. It has its depression, physical conditions of all sorts and types and kinds. And again, let's be careful to observe that the fact that you become a Christian doesn't mean that immediately you lose all those physical constitutional tendencies and defects. They're still there. And uh, therefore, and they're, they're, they're with all these factors, our feelings tend to be variable. We all must have been shocked at ourselves many, many times to observe... Uh, the way in which on awaking in the morning we just find ourselves in a different mood or a different condition. Nothing that you know of accounts for it. The day previous may have been perfectly happy. Everything may have gone wonderfully. And you anticipate another great and glorious day. You find yourself in the morning starting, as it were, depressed and in the wrong mood. Suddenly, without any explanation, you just find yourself like that. Now I say that there is nothing that is more variable than the feelings. But, and this is one of the great points I want to emphasize this morning, 
The greatest danger of all in this respect is the danger of being controlled by our feelings. Now that is the essence of the problem. I was indicating last Sunday morning that uh, the same is true of our temperament, whatever it is. We all are given our temperaments by God. He's made no two of us the same, and we are meant to remain different. Yes, we have our temperaments, but there is nothing that is so wrong and so unchristian as to allow your temperament to rule you. Of course, there are people who almost glory in that. They say, I'm this sort of man, you know, I'm this sort of person. Well, the answer to such a man is if he speaks like that, he shouldn't be. That doesn't mean that he's to change his temperament, but it does mean that he's to control it. You think of the damage done by people who say, you know, I'm one of those people, I always speak my mind, I, I always say what I think. What if everybody did that? In other words, temperament is a gift of God, but as the result of the fall and as the result of sin, temperament is to be kept in its place. A wonderful gift, but to be controlled. Now, it's exactly the same with the feelings. And the feelings are always seeking to control us. And unless we realize this, they undoubtedly will control us. That's what we mean when we talk about moods and about moodiness. The mood here seems to descend upon you. You didn't want it, but there it is. Now the danger is, I said, to allow it to control, to grip us. And because you wake up like that in the morning to go like that through the whole day, and you remain like that until something happens to you to put you right again, or other people conspire together to get you out of that evil mood. Now, there's a great case of this in the Old Testament, Saul, the first king of Israel, and he's just uh, the great example of this particular thing. But surely we all know something about this, and the danger is, I say, to be submitting ourselves to our feelings and to allow them to dictate to us and to govern us and to master us and to control the whole of our lives. That's the essence of the sin involved. And then a final point that I would make under this heading is the whole danger of feeling that we are not Christians at all because we've not had some particular type of feeling or of experience. And this, from the strictly spiritual standpoint, is one of the commonest manifestations of this condition. There are people who hear others talking or giving their testimony or their experience, whatever it may be called, and they testify to some wonderful feeling. And these others say, well, I've never had that. And then they begin to wonder, well, am I a Christian at all? Now, you've got to keep the balance. I started off by saying that the feelings must be engaged in true Christianity. Yet I say here that the mere fact that we haven't had certain particular feelings does not of necessity mean that we're not Christian. We've got to keep these two things going together. Because if we postulate or desiderate certain feelings, and at a certain time, we may very well become victims to the devil, and we may spend the whole of our life in this world unhappy, bound in shallows and in miseries, though the whole time we are truly Christian. Now, this, to me, is a very fascinating theme, but I must uh, avoid the temptation of allowing myself to be drawn after it. There is no doubt at all that at this particular point, not only does the question of temperament arise, but even the question of nationality. 
There is no doubt that there are certain national types that are uh, more given to this particular view of life. There are certainly people in the Christian faith, and they generally belong to the Celtic races, some of whom would almost go so far as to say that it's wrong for a Christian to be too happy. They're so distrustful of the feelings and of the emotions. They would almost say that uh, you must be very careful lest you are kindling a false fire. It isn't confined to the races, it's characteristic of certain denominations. There was a sermon preached about a hundred years ago by a man called J.C. Philpott, a famous sermon bearing this title, The Child of Light Walking in Darkness, and the Child of Darkness Walking in the Light. Based, of course, upon the last two verses of the 50th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. What he was saying in the sermon was this, that you can kindle false sparks You can work up a wonderful conflagration of shavings. It's not going to last. It's not true. It's false fire. And the true child of God, because he realizes the plague of his own heart and his own sinfulness, walks through this world heavily and laboriously, conscious of his sin and of the greatness and the majesty of God. Now, I suggest that in that sermon, uh, that great preacher, J.C. Philpott, went too far. I'm in great sympathy with his main emphasis, but he certainly went too far because the final impression he gives is this. That if you're happy, well, there's probably something wrong with you and it's doubtful whether you're a Christian at all. Now, that's going too far. Well, I say there are people like that, but then, of course, at the other extreme, we have the light-hearted, backslapping type of Christian who goes on singing happily all the day, as I say, and never is aware of any problem at all. And doesn't at times even to have ever come into the presence of the Lord God Almighty. Now you see the compass of the subject. You see these extremes at one side and at the other. Well now then, what is the scripture to tell us about all this? How are we to deal with this problem of feelings? I'm simply going to give you a number of suggestions. The first is a very practical one. It's just this. Christian, if you are at all depressed or unhappy at this moment in this service, what I say to you is make certain that there is no obvious cause for the absence of feelings. What I mean by that is this. If you are guilty of sin, you are going to be miserable. The way of the transgressor is hard. If you break God's laws and violate his rules, you won't be happy. If you think that you can be a Christian and exert your own will and follow your own likes and dislikes, your Christian life's going to be a miserable one. There's no need to argue about this. It follows as the light today. If you are harboring some favorite sin, if you are holding on to something that the Holy Spirit has condemned through your conscience, you won't have true happiness. You'll know something about this depression. And if you do, there's only one thing to do. Face it. Acknowledge it. Repent. Go to God about it. Go to him at once and confess your sin. Open your heart. Bear your soul. Tell him all about it. Hold nothing back. And then believe that because you've done so, he forgives you. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, I should be wasting my time and yours if I went on to my remaining pints, if the whole time that's the cause of your unhappiness. And how many are tripped at that point? Oh, let's be perfectly clear about that. Let your, let your conscience speak to you. Listen to the voice of God in the Spirit as he is within you. And if he is placing his finger upon something, get rid of it. You can't help to solve this problem while you're harboring some sin in that way. But taking that for granted, assuming that that's not the case. The next thing I would say is this. Avoid the mistake of concentrating over much on your feelings. Above all, avoid the terrible error of making them central. Now, I'm never tired of repeating this because I find it so frequently the cause of stumbling. Feelings are never meant to take the first place. They're never meant to be central. If you put them in the first place, if you make them central, you're of necessity doomed to trouble. Because you're doing something that's unnatural, you're violating the order that God himself has established and has ordained. Feelings are always the result of something else. And how anybody who's ever read the Bible could have fallen into that error passes my comprehension. The psalmist has put it once and forever in the 34th Psalm. You remember his invitation, taste, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. But you'll never see until you've tasted. You won't know it, you won't feel it until you've tried it. Taste and see. It follows as the night the day, but there's no seeing before tasting. It's impossible. Now, that is something, of course, that is, uh, I say, constantly emphasized in the scripture everywhere. After all, what we have in this book is truth. It isn't an emotional stimulus. It isn't something primarily calculated to work us up or to give us uh, particularly joyous experiences. It's primarily truth. And truth is addressed to the mind. God's supreme gift to men. And it is as we apprehend and receive and submit ourselves to the truth that the feelings follow. So they're never to be put in the primary position. They're never to be regarded as central. And I must never ask myself, what do I feel about this? Do I believe it is my first question? Do I accept it? Do I subscribe to it? Has it gripped me? Very well, then, that is, uh, I regard as perhaps the most important rule of all, that we must not concentrate over much upon them. Don't spend too much time feeling your own pulse. Don't spend too much of your time in analyzing your feelings and uh, watching them. That's the higher road to morbidity. Now, the subtlety of it all comes in, of course, in this way. You read the lives of all the great saints of all the centuries, doesn't matter what communion they belong to, and you'll find that every one of them has emphasized the importance of self-examination. Every one of them. Doesn't matter what particular brand of theology they advocated, they're all at one at this point. They say you must examine yourself, you must search your own heart, you must prove your own self, and they've all done so. Now, the very fact, of course, that they've done that has meant that naturally and inevitably they have had to look at their feelings. 
They want to make sure that they're not mere intellectualists who've got an intellectual interest in arguing about theology. They want to make sure, I say, that they're not just emotionalists or just uh, moralists. And the result is they've had to examine, and rightly so. Yes, but in doing that, the tendency always is to make over much of the feelings. Oh, there are some notable examples of this. I always feel that David Brainerd and Henry Martin go into that group, but perhaps the classical instance of all was a man who lived in America in the 17th century. Dr. Alexander White wrote a most interesting study of that particular man. And there was a poor man who seemed to me to make himself wretched, Thomas Shepard. Thomas Shepard, who went from Atherstone in the heart of England to America, and one of, was one of the greatest saints that has ever trod the face of this earth. But that poor man, it seems to me, was constantly in danger of increasing his depression because of his great concern to avoid it, in a sense and his great desire to be true and open and honest before God. He hadn't realized that there is this variable character. He was always postulating the maximum, and if he fell short of it, he made himself wretched and he lashed himself. Well, that is something then I say to bear in mind. So the next point I would put is this, that we must recognize the difference between rejoicing and feeling happy. There is all the world of difference between rejoicing and feeling happy. The scriptures tell us that we should always rejoice. Take that lyrical epistle of Paul's to the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. He goes on saying it. Rejoicing is commanded. Yes, but there's all the difference in the world between rejoicing and being happy. I said you can't make yourself feel happy, but you can make yourself rejoice. Well, how says someone, well, in this sense, that you're always told to rejoice in the Lord. Happiness is something within ourselves. Rejoicing is in the Lord. Very well, then. Draw the distinction between rejoicing in the Lord and feeling happy. Take that fourth chapter of Second Corinthians that we read together at the beginning. And there, I think, you find the great apostle putting it all so plainly and so clearly... You notice these extraordinary contrasts of his. He says, we are troubled on every side. I don't think he felt very happy at that moment, but he says, yet not distressed. We are perplexed. Well, he wasn't uh, feeling happy all the day at that point, but he's not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down. Yes, but not destroyed, and so on. In other words, the apostle doesn't suggest there that uh, he was this kind of happy person in a carnal sense. But he was rejoicing. And that is the difference between the two. Very well, that brings me to the practical point, which is this. The great thing in this respect is to learn how to stir ourselves up. That's the whole essence of this method. As I've been describing to you, the whole danger is that the mood comes upon us and we allow it to dominate and to dictate. And there we are. We say we'd like to be delivered and yet we do nothing about it. We're waiting. The apostle's advice to Timothy is, stir up the gift. Away, dull sloth and melancholy. You've got to speak to yourself. We've said this many times in this series and I shall go on saying it. There is a sense in which what the scriptures do is to teach us how to speak to ourselves. 
You remember how I put it in the first sermon like this. Instead of allowing yourself to speak to you, you speak to yourself. This horrible self that plays upon the feelings because uh, the self uh, can't really face the intellect. There's no argument at all. So self always concentrates on the feelings. If you thought about the thing, you'd shake yourself out of that mood at once, that bitter, jealous, envious mood, whatever it is, that can't stand up to reason. Ah, oh, no, so it turns to the feelings, and the feelings rather like it, and they say it's too bad, and you're not being dealt with fairly, and so on. They speak to you. Now I say the thing to do is speak to it. Don't let yourself, which works on your feelings, speak to you. You speak to yourself. And stir up the gift. Remind yourself of certain things. And you must talk to your feelings. And you must say to your feelings, I'm not going to be dominated by you. I can't make myself happy, but I refuse to be miserable. You shan't hold me down. You shan't settle upon me as a cloud. I'm going out. I'm breaking through. You get up and you walk. You do something. Stir up the gift. That's it. And we are commanded to do this. And the scripture everywhere exalts us to do this. You allow these moods to control you and you'll remain miserable. But you mustn't allow them. You must shake them off. I say again, away, dull sloth and melancholy. Don't recognize it. Very well, how do you do all that? Well, you do it like this. The child of light, walking in darkness. He doesn't see the face of the Lord at this point, but he knows he's there. So he goes on. Very well, still more practically, let me put it like this. Do you want to be happy? Would you like to be thrilling with joy and happiness as a Christian? Here's the prescription. Blessed. Truly happy. Are they who hunger and thirst? After righteousness. Not after happiness. Don't go seeking thrills. Don't go seeking happiness. Seek righteousness. And as certainly as you do so, you shall be blessed. You will be filled. You'll get the happiness. Seek the happiness. You'll never find it. Seek righteousness. And you'll discover that you're happy. It'll be there without you knowing it, without you seeking it. Oh, but finally let me put it in this way. Do you want to know the supreme joy? Do you want to be filled with a happiness that eludes description? There's only one thing to do really. Seek him. Seek him himself. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you find your feelings are black and dark and depressing, don't sit down and commiserate with yourself. Don't try and work up something. Oh, this is the simple essence of it all. Go directly to him. Seek his faith. As the little child who is miserable and unhappy because somebody else has taken his tie or has broken it, runs to its father or its mother. Find all it needs. So you and I, as we find ourselves afflicted by this condition, have really but one thing to do. Go to him. If you seek the Lord Jesus Christ and find him, there's no need to worry about your happiness and your joy. It is joy itself 
It is happiness, it is peace, it is love, it is everything. Seek him and seek his face. And all others shall be added unto him. Amen. We apologize for the poor quality during the last few moments of this message. This was due to a deterioration of the original master tape. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.